Now, typically, um, I would feel much more comfortable uh, standing on that stage where Joe is uh, leading music on a day like today, um, but um, I did something relatively mean um, in choosing that tune for the band to play as our question uh, raiser. Um, and the reason being, I, I, love, I love Coldplay. I respect Coldplay. Um, but no one should be so mean as to write a song that has verses in standard rock and roll, four, four, one, two, three, four, and then for the chorus, move to seven, four, which is you sort of miss a beat every time you go through from one, two, three. All right, anyway, um, it's hard to play. They did a good job, and I'm glad I didn't have to do that counting. That's all I'm saying. Um, but today, what I get to do is uh, um, walk us through and hopefully finish off our series called The Hundredth Monkey Fallacy. And uh, to do that, um, I've wondered, as I've been writing this, where do you start? Um, what do we do to, uh, to kick this off? I think we can probably start by um, going back to what we've done up until now. This series is called The Hundredth Monkey Fallacy, which is sort of a ridiculous name, intentionally ridiculous. Um, and the talks had relatively ridiculous names also. Um, and during the course of the five weeks so far, we've given you a number of different ways to explain the transmission of a message, of a movement, of a virus, whatever you want to call it. But the movement of the word that we're talking about through the world. We've looked at it as sort of this growing web with intricate connections. Then we've thought maybe that there's actually connections within those connections, and we visually showed you that a little bit. And we've said that maybe it's just even more than that. Maybe we actually have to look at the groups that are involved in what that is and define those groups. And maybe it's not just that. Maybe we actually define how those groups develop into each other and walk through those. And then maybe it's, well, not those groups, but maybe it's just this disparate thing that we've got to figure out how they fit together. And then we've got to figure out how they're connected. Is it circles? Is it lines? And what's more important, is it the groupings or is it the connections part of it? And that really just boils down for, to me that I like to draw pretty pictures a lot. I think in pictures, I think in visuals, and I can use them as a crutch. And I could sit here and explain for the next hour how those pictures work and how that connection works and all that. But that really has no relevance to this series whatsoever if we don't understand where we started and where we want to get to. We've talked for five weeks about a fallacy that we want to break down. That fallacy, we started in week one by saying we buy in to some degree to a fallacy that says Christianity has existed already for 2,000 years and I wasn't a part of it. You know, maybe I got 5, 10, 20 years involved, but I mean, it went for a long time without me. So why does it need me to be involved? That's a fallacy that needs to be broken down immediately and say, we have to get in the game if we want this movement to spread around the world. We can't start until we understand that. Then we can move on and understand why we would have hope at all about moving this message forward. For us, hope looks like a life of constant transformation that we want to talk about. God gives us a really good reason to believe in that transformation. Once we understand what that hope is, we've got to examine pretty closely what our world looks like. And in week three, we went back to ancient Greece and looked at a culture that was so desperate and begging that they were willing to make up gods on the drop of the hat. 
they introduced an unknown God because quite literally a goat they released to go be sacrificed went to a place where there wasn't a God recognized. So they had to make one up because there must be a God there because that's where the goat went. That's the level of begging that we were at. And while that seems foreign to us, if we think about our lives today, we're pretty much the same. We worship idols, we worship gods, and we're willing to create them at the drop of a hat to solve our problems. We live in a begging world that needs that hope. Week five and week four looked at if we see this begging world, we have to decide if we're going to engage it. And engaging it means understanding our own rescue. Now, I will own up, cop to this, 100th monkey fallacy, weird title for a series. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Worst talk title ever. I came up with it. Worst talk title ever. Don't know where it came from, but what it comes down to is, do you understand your own rescue? Because that's the key to impact in the world. We talked about the life of Paul, someone coming from a little town in Syria, and through understanding his own transformation on a roadside because of a bright white light, he's able to impact thousands of miles worth of his world. Week five takes that a step further and says something very uncomfortable in our nice, cushy American world, which is we understand we're involved, we understand what hope is, understand the world needs it, and we have to jump into it. If we don't intervene, we're watching death happen. Does that make you uncomfortable? Because it certainly makes me uncomfortable. Knowing that if we don't intervene in some way, shape, or form, we're watching death happen. That's five pretty heavy weeks with a silly name. That leads us to week six, our last week. And this is my question. What's next? We understand hope. We understand the world's need. Hopefully understand we should be a part of this. What's next for us? Well, I'm a guy that likes stories. I like finite. I like tactile. As I said before, I like pictures. I want to know how it works. So give me an example. Luckily for me, I don't have to make up an example here. I don't have to come up with something about my kids or whatever. There is an entire book of the Bible, which is called Acts, which is filled with these examples. Now, the book of Acts was written, oh, I don't know, about 30 years after the death of Jesus. It was written by a man named Luke, who is a Syrian Greek doctor. And what it is is a chronicle, essentially, of what the followers of Jesus were doing after his death, how they were spreading the message of Jesus around the world, what happened next, basically. And it's filled with stories. This isn't theory. This isn't new concepts. It's stories of what happened told through the eyes of someone who was watching it or doing it. Today, we're going to look at chapter 4 of this book. In this chapter, we've got a very specific event which is being told. Right before what we talk about today, John and Peter, who were two men that were followers of Jesus, who were charged with and were really investing in spreading his word to the rest of the world, they had just healed a man. This wasn't... Uh, sniffles, let's give you vitamin C, get a Z-pack or whatever it's called. You know, like, we're going to knock this out. No, this is, they encountered a man who sat at the gates of the city every day and begged to 
because he couldn't walk. They encountered him. He asked for money. They said, walk instead. And he did. Now, that's the kind of thing that's tough to keep a secret. Message goes out from there. That's the kind of word that spreads. Someone that wasn't walking is now walking after talking to these two guys. The message goes out pretty fast. So, as goes through most of the book of Acts, there are consequences for the guys that spread God's word. Here's what happens. John and uh, Peter are called before the leaders of the church for a pretty particular reason. Uh, the place that they were living was ruled by Rome. And Rome was in some way okay with the Jewish church, with the new Christians, somewhat okay, as long as they didn't cause problems. If they were a threat to who was ruling the land, it became a problem. But you can believe what you want to believe. Just don't cause any problems for us. So the leaders of the church see this message going across the city and moving out that someone's been healed. They're doing it in the name of Jesus. They're saying he's God. This is going to cause problems with the Romans. So as is what happens over and over and over again, they call in John and Peter to answer for what they've done. And they say, what'd you do? So this is where our scripture starts. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. Pretty consistent. You cause a little problem, we're either going to put you in jail, we're going to banish you, we're going to at least question you, maybe kill you, I don't know. One of those things. There's going to be consequences for this. Now, what happens next is not unique to this group of guys. After they're put in jail, the leaders get together and they talk about what should happen. And they question them. And this is what Peter responds with when they ask him the next day. He says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Wow. They, uh, they know the consequences of saying that Jesus is running the show, or what we do is in the name of this man who we say is raised from the dead and brings us life. But they say very specifically, this is in his name that this happened. Now, they don't stop there. They actually go on and say, he is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. I've been reading the Bible pretty consistently since I became a Christian, and uh, I still get tripped up by some of the language. I still get tripped up by the imagery and uh, the way things are described sometimes because it can feel cryptic. Now, the Bible that I use to read most of the time uh, is, is called the Quest Study Bible. And sometimes it feels like cheating because they've got these blue margins where they ask the questions, which are typically the, I get to a point and it's like, what do they mean by that? And on the side it says, what they mean by that is, which is great. feels like cheating a little bit. 
But if you don't have a Bible that has the little blue margins and the answers to the questions, every Bible that I've used has, at the bottom of the page, little footnotes, which is typically when there's a word that is confusing or imagery or something's a quote from somewhere else, there'll be a little A, a B, a C, something like that, a one or two or three that points to the bottom of the page and says, look here if you want to know what I'm talking about. So I get to this point and I say, okay, we're talking about healing, we're talking about Jesus, and now we're talking about stones. We're talking about building. Where's that come from? Luckily, bottom of the page takes this passage right here and says, okay, the stone, the builders, comes from Psalms, comes from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the exact words are used. Didn't help me, though, because it's the same exact words. I don't know what they're talking about. At the bottom of that page, though, there's another note that sends me to the book of Mark. Now, Mark, I know, is an easy book to read because it's just the story of Jesus' life. Told through the apostles, told through Jesus' own words. And in this, Jesus refers to himself this way. So there's no confusion in my mind. What Peter and John are talking about is Jesus when they say, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Why a stone? Well, Jesus has called a lot of things in the Bible, plenty of words. You're going to hear plenty of them as Christmas time comes around, Emmanuel and all those kind of things. One of the more plain but beautiful words that's used to describe Jesus over and over is the concept of a stone. Sometimes as a foundation that life can be built on, or sometimes as this capstone. Now, Bill Morgan and I were actually talking, and Bill Morgan's an architect and engineer, and he was helping me clarify exactly what a capstone is. Because the word capstone, well, it's given sometimes as capstone, sometimes as foundation, sometimes as lentil, sometimes as um, keystone. Now, if you know anything about building or masonry, which I don't, um, I know the word keystone, though. And a keystone is not the first of the uh, stones that, lay, that is laid, but is the most important because it holds everything else together. It's not necessarily the largest, but it's the one that if you remove it from the equation, everything else falls. That's how they're describing Jesus, who they just said, the way we healed this man is through Jesus' name. He is the keystone. If you take him out of this arch, it all falls. They then go on to say, salvation is found in no one else. They could have stopped even right there. What we just did was in Jesus' name, which we know is going to cause problems with you. They go a step further and say, salvation is found in no one else. Not just healing, but salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Once again, I've been reading the Bible for a little while, not my whole life, but a little while, and I still get tripped up by words that I think I know the meaning, but I always got to clarify the meaning because I know the meaning of the word peach. The meaning of the word peach is you can hold it and touch it, and it's, it's a beautiful, most juicy, gorgeous thing that has ever been created in mankind is a peach made into a pie. It's even better. We know what a peach means. Salvation is a stickier word, though. It's tougher to say, what does that mean? So I look for other places that it's used, what it rhymes with, how it's described. And typically, it's used or described as reconciliation. Or it's used with restoration or rescue. Release from something. And when Jesus uses it, 
he frequently is saying, salvation is the end of our estrangement from God. If we are separated from a father who loves us, salvation returns us to him. That's the word they're using. This is not make your knees feel better. This is change your life. Restore you to a God that loves you. That's what they're talking about here. They don't make a general reference. They make it specific. Only Jesus lived and died to save us from our brokenness. Salvation, to return us to God. They had the opportunity after a night in jail to sort of cool off and think about it to say, you know, it was a coincidence. The guy was faking it. He wasn't really disabled. No, they stick boots on the soil and they say, yeah, we did it. We did it in Jesus' name. And to go further, he's the one that saves us all. Okay, so the story continues and the, uh, the leaders of the church make it one level more complicated. Now, as I tell this part, I'm putting up what happens next so you can consider that in context. The leaders confer and they go back to Peter and John and say, essentially, one more chance. We love what you're doing. We love the effect that this is having. But the Jesus part is causing problems. Can you do this without talking about Jesus? Just do it not in his name. And Peter and John replied, no conferring, no, let's talk this out. Didn't have to think about it. They reply, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For them, there was a pretty clear choice being laid before them, which is you can keep doing the good stuff as long as you don't cause problems with the Jesus thing. Or you can be in full scale and deal with the consequences. They said, choice is clear for us. That seems a little foreign to me because I live in America in 2010 and choices don't typically look like that. Choices don't typically look that black and white or that simple. Unless, of course, you're a politician and don't confuse me that you're only red or only blue or something like that. For me, well, th this last week was Thanksgiving. One of my favorite weeks of the year. I love Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in my house growing up was just the most wonderful thing. My mother is a wonderful cook. And uh, on our table at Thanksgiving, there would probably be 15 people, and there would be about 25 dishes, 20, 22, 25, because nobody's going to eat everything, but everybody has something they want to eat. So there's stuffing. There's in-the-bird stuffing and out-of-the-bird stuffing. But then there is sweet potatoes, and there's non-sweet potatoes that are mashed, and there's ones that are double-stuffed because David likes this, and Pete likes this, and Steve likes this, and Dad likes this, and you got to have something on the table for everybody because nobody's going to eat it all. And so my experience growing up was you see all 20-something dishes on the table, and you say, I like this one, this one, this one, this one, and this one. I really don't like that. I really don't like that. I think my brother has the closest to the record. He will eat, when there's more than 20 dishes on the table, he will eat every single thing except for the German slaw. If you don't know what German slaw is, take some vinegar, cook it in vinegar, and put some more vinegar on top of it, and add cabbage, and you got it. He doesn't like that for some reason. Um, I do. That's the only thing he won't eat on the table. But he has identified really clearly, I love it all. Thanksgiving is awesome as long as I don't have to eat that. That's his idea of how choices work. That's how my idea of choices work. Now, this past week in my family, we did host a full Thanksgiving dinner at our house. Some of you were there. It was nice. Had a couple of tables full of people. It was great. People we knew, people we didn't know. And uh, I ate every dish on the table. I can say that I did that because I'm the one that decided what was on the menu. 
and uh, I did uh, the, most of the dinner cooking. My wife did all of the, she did, you know, breads and cookies and all that, most of which I had to give the okay of. There's not too much chocolate in that, so I'm good with it. I ate everything on the table because I'm the one that picked the choices. There was, uh, Tammy's dad was there, and he doesn't like onions a whole lot, so the stuffing that I like still had onions in it. I made separate stuffing for him with no onions in it, but it wasn't my stuffing, it was cornbread stuffing because I wanted to try cornbread stuffing. So therefore, I could eat the one with onions and the one without onions and still like it. I set up these choices in a way that I didn't have to choose. I got it all. I didn't have to say no to anything. Now, I have three little girls, and they have a whole different idea of what choices are. Because in our family, for the most part, everything's a choice. You choose good or bad. You choose something with consequences, something with rewards. We don't tell them necessarily everything to do. We give them, here's your choices. You make your choice. That one has consequences. This one doesn't. So uh, there was a time when uh, Talia, my oldest, was about three or so, and a choice was laid before her. I think she had thrown a ball and hit somebody in the head, or I don't remember what it was exactly. But Tammy's response to her was, if I see you doing that again, there will be a consequence. So you choose. And so Talia did. She said, okay, I'm going to go into the kitchen where you can't see me, and I'm going to do it. She didn't do that. She told Tammy that's what she was going to do because she had heard, if you don't see me do this, it's okay. She wasn't being disobedient. She wasn't being devious. She heard the choices, and she interpreted them in her framework, which is, if you don't see me, it's okay. We have since changed our language a little bit. Let you know. Um, but she had taken this set of choices and she had interpreted it in her way that made it work. It gave her a choice that she liked so she could continue doing what she wanted to do. And those two sets of choices, like this buffet out there of Thanksgiving is a table this big and I can pick this, 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 and this, but not this, this, and this, that's how we see choices. Or, okay, if we have only two choices, I'm going to hear them how I want to hear them and choose the one that still works for me. That's how choices seem to work for us. And that's reinforced by some pretty interesting and chilling statistics that uh, I have seen. And uh, this comes from uh, the Pew Research um, study that was done last year on religion in America. And they, they found that about 92% of Americans believe in something they would define as God. Not the spirits in the grass, but like God. Okay, interesting number. And they said that about 78% of America would self-identify themselves as Christians. Specifically the word Christian. Okay, interesting number. Of that 78%, though, only 24% were willing to say that Jesus is the only way to God. Sit and think about that just for a second. I call myself a Christian, but I don't necessarily think the thing that I think is the only thing. One step further, of people that call themselves, or people that would be considered Protestants, which is roughly where we would fall, only 12% say that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, to God. We apparently think 
there are plenty of options, and we've just chosen a good one. It's good for us, but even saying that we're Christians doesn't mean that it's the only way. This chilled me a little bit, looking at it. But to take it a step further, for me, I realized one of the reasons it was chilling me was because that 88% that believe there's another way was where I was. Not last week when I was looking at these things, but a couple of years ago when I was looking at whether I could call myself a Christian. When I had people talking to me about whether I should be attending church, whether I should be talking to God, whether I should be a Christian. That 80% had a lot in common with me. Because I didn't understand what the choice was, and I was making my own set of choices. Now, Ryan, Tom, and Sarah were three people that were regularly telling me there's a choice to make. And here's the options that I had. I was on one side. I was choosing option one, which I had grown up with parents who went to church. I had grown up going to church sometimes. I enjoyed vacation Bible school because I'm a smart guy and I liked sort of the moral framework that this guy, Jesus, was talking about. He seemed to have this great way that I could live my life. He was a good moral teacher. We can learn a lot from him about how to good, live a good moral life. And I mean, I had, I had lined out for myself what was the important part. You got to love your neighbor. You serve people outside yourself on the margins that no one else will serve and invest with. He told me really specific, do not murder the Old Testament stuff, was not that simple. There was more to it. It was more complicated and more nuanced. I was reading a lot of Gandhi stuff at the time. Gandhi loved Jesus. Good with me. Jesus specifically spoke about religion and getting rid of the show oriented with, you know, don't pray so people see you pray. Don't fast so people know you're a Christian. Shun that show and level. I'm like, this is great stuff. I love the moral side of this. That's the option that I'm choosing. But I was being told there's another option. There's option two. And option two, if you read what Jesus says about himself, is pretty simple. The moral teacher isn't it. That's not where the story ends. Option two, Jesus says he's the son of God. He taught the world about transformation. And he sacrificed himself to save us from our sins. He made it pretty simple in saying that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The choice was laid out for me. I could try and live a good life based on some of Jesus' teachings, or I could choose transformation. I could choose to have faith in someone that seemed crazy to me and make a crazy choice. One of my favorite writers now is a guy named C.S. Lewis. And many of you have probably read Mere Christianity or Screwtape Letters or something like that by him. And in one of his books, Mere Christianity, he lays out a not new concept, um, but one that is the crux for me of this option one, option two, of live a good life versus be transformed by believing. And that, it breaks down to if you only believe the left side, 
that you can listen to Jesus and live a good life because he's a good moral teacher, you're presented with a dilemma. It's actually, as C.S. Lewis calls it, a trilemma because there's three potential options. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. The trilemma was this. If I believed that he was just a great moral teacher and I wanted to throw out the rest of the stuff, I had to believe that, well, he was either crazy because he was saying he was God and that sounds about as sane as I'm a poached egg or he was a liar and he was lying to us about the God stuff so we'd believe the good moral teacher stuff, which of course goes back to he must be crazy or he must actually be what he says he is, which is a savior who wants to transform my life and return me to a relationship with the Father. That trilemma doesn't fit typically into our world of choices. We don't want to have to make a choice like that. So if we go back to Act, where we read this story originally, the choice was pretty clear. It seems to me that the questioners weren't throwing out the whole deal. They weren't saying everything you're about stinks. They were saying, we just don't like the one part. So give you the option to opt out of the part we don't like. I was wrestling with that, and I think the world wrestles with that. We, at the end of this series, talking about dirty word evangelism, end of a series talking about talking to others about Jesus, we're presented with those same options. We're presented with that same choice. I believe you can't take the Jesus part out of the transformation. They don't live independently of each other. The world presents us with the option to just do good things. Jesus offers us the opportunity to be transformed and out of that, live a life that transforms the world. It's a hard choice and it's an uncomfortable choice because we actually have to put boots down in the soil where we want to hedge, where we want to do the buffet. Mark that did orientation, he, he likes to refer to buffet spirituality, buffet Christianity. I like this part, I like this part, I like this part, but I also like to worship the trees. Not quite the whole deal. It's not a buffet. It is actually a choice to be made. And in this series, we get to a point where we ask, what's next? Crazy? Liar? Or savior? For me, I chose Savior because I saw I needed transformation. Jesus offered it, and it was something I could actually experience. I heard Kurt say a long time ago, you stay in how you got in. Transformation doesn't end at moment one. A life of being a Christian is a life of constantly seeking transformation. We get opportunities over and over and over again to opt out of the Jesus part. This series says, if you believe 
what we believe, you can't opt out of Jesus. And that calls us into other people's lives in a profound way. So, Coldplay, put it on the table. You can see your future in a glass of water. You're half full, half empty. As long as in America you've got half full glass of water, you've still got options, we're good to go, put it off. Choose what you want later. I don't believe that's the case. Christians don't believe that's the case. We believe if you're in, you're in for transformation. And I want you to be in. Jesus transformed my life in a way that I didn't know was possible eight or nine years ago. When I looked at Ryan, Tom, and Sarah in the face and said, you're crazy. They said, I don't care because I want your life to be transformed. If you are a believer, I don't think you have a choice about whether you're going to be a Tom, Ryan, Sarah. You need to be the one called crazy because you're telling people their life can be transformed by Jesus' love. That's the beauty of our faith. Real transformation happens every day, and we get to see it. If you're not a Christian, and you're still sitting on the fence between moral teacher or savior, I want to tell you, I don't think there is a fence. I think you're actually on one side or the other, and you can't dabble. We've spent six weeks talking about a complicated and uncomfortable thing, which is telling our friends, not generally about how to good, live a good life, but how to seek and be a part of transformation in the world. And I want that for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we come to you today knowing we are um, one of millions or billions that have lived on this earth in a broken, begging world. Amen. We come to you asking for transformation daily, um, seeking to come close to you, to love you, and be a part of your movement on this earth. Be with us. Fill our hearts and give us confidence and courage to tell others about our love for you. Amen. As we go into this uh, second half of today's service, there's a couple of ways that we respond. One of them is uh, through an offering. We believe that God gives us great gifts, and uh, we give back to him in a way that can transform um, people's lives. We also engage in worship and response. And the way we're actually going to start this second set is by, with a Mumford & Sons tune called Awake My Soul, which is one of the more powerful tunes that I've heard in the last year um, because of the simplicity of the lyrics. Transformation is truly an awakening. And the lyrics of this talk about what that awakening can be. <laughs> 